Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. When you stop and think about it, the intricacies of the Google platform, it's pretty mind boggling. And it's one of the reasons why it's such a great platform in a lot of ways, but it's also diabolical in the same way. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouters and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Welcome back to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. We are here with Kasim Aslam from Solutions 8. He's going through an amazing case study. If you haven't listened to the first part, listen to the first part. Now we're going to get into, is this just an e-com thing? Can we use this for lead gen? It's one of the big questions that I have. But also, you mentioned overall campaign structure. This campaign is just one campaign out of lots of campaigns. Can you describe exactly how you guys approach this? from maybe a 30,000 foot view as far as what's going on inside Google? Yeah, the first thing I'll say, because we're talking 30,000 feet, is machine learning takes time. It takes time. And so when you're running something like this, you gotta give it time. And I've seen so many people stop three feet from gold. And I really mean that, by the way. A big part of my job is evaluating campaigns for folks, inbound leads. And we offer people a free action plan. And so they'll come to us and I'll open up their Google account. And I'm like, gosh, you were actually doing everything right. You just didn't give us enough time or enough money. There's some campaigns yeah. that are being 
they're being starved for oxygen because you're not giving it enough enough juice. So time and money, and those are the two things that businesses don't have, right? So you're asking in some cases for the impossible, but that's just the yeah. reality of paid traffic. It's a tough ask. Yeah, it really is for a lot of folks. That's why, you know, it's funny, man. I run a paid ad agency. I run one of the top Google agencies on the planet. And I think paid traffic is one of the last things a company should do. There's so many other ways to go out there and test your offer. And I'm sure you're going to talk about this on the customer acquisition show. 100%. Paid traffic is a luxury of scale. It shouldn't necessarily be where you go to test or to learn. It's where you go to scale once you've found some successes. But to answer your question directly, there's no one size fits all anymore. There used to be. We used to actually have, you probably remember this, Ralph, we had a four campaign template. Right. And we would do your brand campaign, your competitor campaign, your search campaign, and your remarketing campaign. And that was more or less the template. And then we added DSA. And then we added YouTube for top of the funnel and then discovery and display and PMAX. And now it's so heavily dependent upon the client. I will tell you for level yellow leaf hammocks though, what's worked really well for us performance max, of course, mm-hmm. but performance max is our R and D campaign. Performance max shows us other audiences and campaign types that work. And then we build those campaigns separately. So for example, and try not to give away specific strategies for these folks because they do have competitors in the space. So I'll genericize this a little bit, but let's say that you start seeing inside of performance max that the YouTube placement within performance max is working really well. You don't lean into it from within performance max. Instead, you go build a specific YouTube campaign independent of performance max so Uh that you can prioritize it and optimize it and attribute spend according to your testing lab. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Because PMAX is in all of Google's inventory. And PMAX goes where Google wants it to go, not necessarily where it's best for you to go. Google's trying to maximize the value of their own inventory. So you notice that PMAX is always going to be heavy display. But PMAX is important. And dude, everybody is sleeping on DSA, dynamic search ads. DSA, and they might deprecate DSA too. I hope they don't. But DSA is such a powerful campaign type for everything. Local, e-com, lead gen. What DSA does, if you have quality content on your website, you have to run DSA. If you don't have quality content on your website, then go get quality content on your website because that's an absolute prerequisite. But Google uses the content on your website to determine what your website is about. And then it chooses what phrases to bid on or what audience to put you in front of based off of that content. And then get this, it writes the ads for you. It's basically paid SEO. And it's so powerful when it works and it's easy to test. And the nice thing about it is when it fails, it fails quickly. Um, So DSA is really important. And then dynamic remarketing. And one thing I will say is the number one mistake I see people make in the e-com space, and this is a little technical, but it's important, is e-com prod ID not firing properly. If your e-com prod ID doesn't fire properly, Google cannot dynamically remarket to your prospect, which means you have a thousand SKUs in your store, and I'm looking at SKU 491, variation A. If I leave, you sure want to put that SKU back in front of me. You don't want to just send me a generic logo or whatever. You want me to see the thing that I was looking at. Sure. And if your e-com prod ID doesn't fire, then that connection isn't made and that's not possible. And we see that more often than I care to tell you. And it's a difficult fix in some instances, depending on your CMS, but it's an absolute prerequisite for e-commerce. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot. So on the feed side of the equation, it was there a lot of work that was done here, like pre-work? Dude, the benefit we had, here's the other thing too that's really funny is I like to pretend like I'm really good at what I do. All I do is just choose good businesses to work with. And then it's all really easy. Like their site was so well built, 
so well structured. They had really solid product titles, really solid product descriptions. They already had GTIN codes, if memory serves, which nobody has. They have great images. They have a ton of lifestyle images. Like they're a dream client. So there just wasn't, there wasn't a ton of work for us to do in terms of CRO. You know, that's the type of thing that you can put in front of Google and Google's like, all right, I got everything I need. Let me go figure out who's going to convert. Yeah. (laughs) I have all the tools. And for people who don't know, GTIN codes. Think of them, they're like the unique identifier for a product. And it's what Google uses. Because if you think to yourself, well, how does Google know what this product is? The title can change. The description can change. The attributes change. The images change. There's Everything's a moving target. GTIN code is like the social security number for that product. And when you're using GTIN codes, it, it means that you can change all other things, but Google still knows what that thing is. You can go get GTIN codes for, there's a nonprofit called GS1. I think it's gs1.org. I might have that wrong, but they're inexpensive and it's tedious as hell because mm-hmm. in theory, you should have, you should have one GTIN code, not just per product, but per product variation. Now, sometimes that's just not feasible. We had a, what, the largest lighting supply company on the planet and they had a million SKUs. There was no way we were getting one GTI encode for every product variation. So then you start making some strategic decisions. Like, I, you know, what we did, what we had a, a client that sold cologne and perfumes. And so we got a GTI encode for the smallest. And the reason we did that is because we wanted the smallest bottle of cologne to show up in the feed because that was the cheapest price. Right. And so if you're looking for a Christian Dior or whatever, it'll show up in the feed, show up as the smallest price. You click on that. But then when you increase the size, the price goes up. But we're showing you the smallest price so it looks the most competitive in the feed. Right. Here's what's interesting about that, though. And this is the trade-off you're making. That sale gets appended to the GTIN code of the smallest bottle. So now Google thinks, or is at least acting as if, the sale of the large bottle is attributed to the small bottle, and that hurts your ability to optimize long-term because you're not giving Google, let's say there's five different sizes for a bottle of cologne, you're not giving Google the ability to segment between those five sizes. So it's a balance Mm -hmm. of risks, and what's up to you as to how you approach that. Right. So you have to pick and choose. Like you have to make decisions when it comes to GTI because especially when you have thousands of SKUs. Correct. Dude, here's what's nuts. If you're selling somebody else's product, they should be providing you with the GTIN code. This gets a little conspiracy theory-esque and you can reel me back in if I'm starting to build a tinfoil hat here on our podcast. But I don't see one on your head, but anyway, keep going. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> My tinfoil hat is invisible. The GTIN code is used across in theory the right way to do it is used across all vendors if you're selling nike shoes or whatever or a product that other people are selling you're all using the same gtin code here's what scares me is let's say that you're the first to market or you're spending the most money out of all your competitors you're telling google who buys this product and what quantities how much they're willing to pay who they are demographically and psychographically what their path to purchase looks like but you're telling them and appending that information to this GTIN code that you don't own. Why would Google not use that information on behalf of your competitors when they start to advertise? So now your competitor goes and says, (laughs) I'm going to go sell the same shit. Oh, and by the way, you paid all the R&D costs. Thank you very much, Ralph. I now have the same 600% row as you have because you were first to market. Makes sense. And what do you do about that? You know? pioneers get shot in the back to a certain degree and i guess google is doing the firing <laughs> yeah but it's not even it's shot in the front you know what i mean they're just like i'm not even shy about it that's true yeah they see you coming and they're shooting you right in the face yeah. that's unfortunate but that's the playing field that we're on right now they, these platforms know so much and they're all the information that you're talking about right here for 
competitors in this space? Aren't they all sharing basically the, and those competitors for yellow leaf hammocks are advertising on Google as well. You know that Google is helping those competitors based upon the yellow leaf hammocks campaigns, correct? Dude, so, yeah, here's my thesis. This is my problem. This is, again, conspiracy theory-esque, but very, it's such an important discussion. Google knows all of the available inventory. So take that and put that idea on a shelf. Google has knows all the available inventory, all the people that are willing to buy a hammock or could be made to buy a hammock with the right information. Google has that. And I think that I don't even have to prove that. Like, that's pretty obvious. But then Google knows all the people who are trying to sell hammocks, what they make on those hammocks, and what they're willing to spend in advertising. It's the ultimate price fix. And if you were Google, you wouldn't want the hierarchical structure, the Pareto distribution that says 20% of the advertisers get 80% of the results because you're burning off advertisers. Instead, what you'd want is you'd want like a Marxist distribution of traffic that says everybody gets an uh, not equal, but just enough. (laughs) Just enough. I I want you to make one penny more than you need to make before you cancel. So and you, if they spread it out mm-hmm. in an egalitarian way, they that's how they maximize the value of their own inventory. Right. And before you think I'm crazy, here's proof of this. And this is in Google's documentation. I'll try to find the help article so I can put it in the show notes. Um, Google used to be based off of an auction model. And an auction model, what's nice about an auction model is an auction model has an absolute zero. If nobody bids, the price is zero until you bid a penny. Google changed that years ago, and they explained why. They have a bid quality threshold to where they say, we will not sell inventory beneath a certain threshold because we believe that it devalues our system or whatever the, whatever the excuse is. But really what they're saying is, I know what you make. I know what this inventory is worth. So even if you're the only human in the ecosystem bidding on this traffic, I'm going to charge you. <laughs> so they're, 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 they're already price-fixing sans competition. And from a machine learning perspective, You'd actually have to intentionally code into the system not to do this, right? If you built a smart AI-driven machine learning mechanism that we know Google is, that thing would automatically maximize the value of the inventory. And so you'd have to be so altruistic and so loving of humanity mm-hmm. that you would take your triple PhD de- developers and say, hey, listen, guys, we need to build, we need to build an algorithm that doesn't maximize the value of our inventory like you right. there's no way a trillion dollar publicly traded company Never. that's profit centered is doing that of course not of course not it's uh, yeah when you stop and think about it and obviously the intricacies of the google platform it's pretty mind-boggling and it's one of the reasons why it's such a great platform in a lot of ways but it's also diabolical in the same way but it yeah. you you, you you are sharecropping in somebody else's plot of land. I don't even think it's intentional. I don't think they set out to like screw the world. I just think this is what happens when you have a very, and I'm going to use a dangerous word, but when you have a very obvious monopoly. You know what I mean? Like, oh, 100%. But still, you're, how do I describe this? It's your privilege to be able to advertise on their platform, though, when you right. really think about it. Like, why should they do anything different? It's their platform. Right. It's Zuckerberg's platform is Facebook. Deal with it. You're going to have to deal with privacy. You're going to have to deal with ads. You're going to have to deal with all these other things. If you don't want to use it, don't use it. If you don't want to yeah. use Google, I don't know how you wouldn't use Google, but like they invented Google and now Google is a profit machine. So I don't think there's any 
there's no argument that says that what they're doing is incorrect because it's their machine that they built at considerable expense. That's the expense. funny thing about Google is Google's a disembodied entity. Here's what I mean. You could not use Facebook by not using the Facebook app. You could not use Amazon right. by not shopping from Amazon. Right. But Google is search. <laughs> is everything. It's Gmail. It's so the you internet. Can't, you actually can't opt out of Gmail because if you're communicating with somebody who's using Gmail, you're basically- You're still using Gmail. Yes. It's analytics. Right. So like Google sees everything that you do on a website, even though you're not necessarily opted into the analytics platform. Like it's so many multivariant, it's the Android operating system. Anybody who's ever called you or sent you a text message from the Android OS, Google would have to have access to that information. Sure. So Google Drive. Google, dude, yeah. All the Google apps. Yeah. Like think about what an unbelievably large ecosystem. You can't just not use Google. If you use Google Drive, it's crazy to think about. Like, I have all my tax records on there. Like, they know exactly how much I've made for the last 20 years. Because it's just like, they really wanted to. Are they using that data to target me? Is that one of the 72 million data points? Here's my question is, how could they not? How could they not? Yeah. You'd actually have to build into the system not to do that. You'd have to be proactively concerned and altruistic and then build into the system these safeguards and be smart enough and preemptive enough to have done that before the system took it and ran with it. I just, I, you can't convince me otherwise. That's the price we pay for convenience. And that's the other thing is really? all Google's free. You ever paid Google for anything other than ads? But Gmail's I, free, Google apps are free, photos are free. I mean, we run our entire company on Google apps. So we uh, pay them every so single cheap. month. It's so cheap when you really think about it it's uh, so for cheap. what you get. I think oh it's like $700 a month or something like that. I forget exactly what it is. But anyway, it's just one of those expenses that you just pay. But the point is like we rely on it for so much. And then I store all my personal information in there. I don't put anything on my computer. That's what that's the price we pay for convenience and for things that better our lives. I mean, it was our li- are our lives better because Google is around because you get mm. Google search engine to be able to navigate this thing called the internet. I would think so. You know, there's, without question. there's a reason why the Ask Jeeves browser, the web crawler browser, like is gone the way of the dodo bird. It's it just, it, this is a better product. They built a better mousetrap at the end of the day. Right. Yeah. So, What's going to be interesting to see is whether or not Google can hurdle Web3. Yeah. If Google can hurdle the decentralization of the internet, because Google kind of relies on centralized information. It's that's what the Google crawler does. It crawls centralized information and then distributes it. So what happens when information is decentralized? And maybe nothing. Maybe it's just it has no impact whatsoever. And it's like, oh, we switched from VHS to DVD now and it's even more efficient. But I don't see them being usurped without a context change. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, we got way off track here. Too firmly embedded. Uh, Last question for you for this. This is an e-commerce brand in our case study here, although we've been talking larger concepts with regard to Google, but it's directly related back to this case study. You have to understand the power and the magnitude of this platform. It is absolutely remarkable. Something like lead gen, though, would you use this type of campaign for a lead generation campaign? No question. We've got a a plastic surgeon. This is another case study, and we can do this one too if you wanted to. That would be another episode. We've got a plastic surgeon in a major metro. I won't give up their city. And plastic surgery is one of the most expensive CPCs you can get, especially in this particular metro where very fancy people live. We're getting $3 cost per leads where clicks are 30 
$60, $90, couple hundred bucks sometimes. And we're doing all of that through Broadmatch. Now, what I will say is they don't scale. They don't scale. And it's because lead gen There's in a, a geo audience. That's exactly right. There's right. only so many people that There's live in the so zip code. Right. And it's the ceiling is on it. But the reason we're getting things so cheap is because what Broadmatch with Smart Bidding does is it helps you capture traffic that nobody else is bidding on. And nobody else is bidding on it because there it's, it's it, the semantic index doesn't overlap. So everybody's going after a plastic surgeon Beverly Hills to sterilize this. If somebody's searching for something that's nuanced, but maybe falling in the cracks or on the periphesis or getting cut off by other people's negative keywords, then you can go capture those leads and you can use it in broad match plus smart bidding. So it absolutely works for lead generation. Doesn't scale as well as e-com, especially if your lead gen is localized, but localized lead gen never scales. It can't by virtue of the fact that it's localized. Like right. that's your limitation. It scales right. as, as broad as the locality will allow it. So like non-local lead gen, how effective has it been? Like that's a great case study, which we should probably talk about that one at some point in time, but I'm a lead generation company or I sell a digital product or whatever it happens to be. Like it doesn't matter where they live. The same principles apply here. Yeah. So we're, we're, here's where we've seen it go wrong is if Google has a hard time, we had a client who's, they had a SaaS product and the name of the SaaS product mirrored an Xbox game. There was this Xbox game that came out. I forgot what it was. I wish I could tell you, but it was like, I don't know what, Foxtrot Victor or Night Foxtrot or so whatever. They named a SaaS product the same thing as they named this Xbox game. And it went off the rails because Google was basically going after gamers. Right. And trying to bring us people searching for this Xbox game. So that was a, a problem that I don't think we'll encounter too often. It's when Google's like knowledge graph gets it wrong as far as what something is. Mm. But I almost blame the company. It'd be like right. naming your company a Mario Kart and then yeah. being pissed off when you got a bunch of people who are looking to play Mario Kart. But like that to me, I'm like, you should have done your research ahead of time. <laughs> or they named the company and then some multinational came out with a hugely right. <laughs> popular product that just so happened to be the name of that right. company. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, this is, this is pretty fascinating. Any other key takeaways from our case study here? Any final thoughts? Yeah. The thing that I didn't harp on enough, but I should is you have to make sure you're using RSA, which is responsive search ads. Um, it's going to maximize your quality score. And if you're looking to capitalize on machine learning, you have to let the machine learn, which means you have to use you have to use the tools that are made available to you. And really, it just means let, take your hand off the wheel. Stop trying to drive. Stop trying to control it. And this was really hard for – we have some big multinational brands. And I'm sure you deal with this too, dude. You get sent brand guidelines. There's this 30-page PDF on our logo. can't be any closer than 13 pixels from the border. And only this font and our name should always show up this way. And I send those right back. And I'm like, well, then you can't run. You can't run Google because it's dynamic. Yeah. And the machine is doing this. And I have no control over it. And I, and I will not accept a screenshot passive-aggressive email from you at 2 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday night because some jackass saw this their ad on a display campaign in a way that they didn't like. Like, I do not care about your brand guidelines. I don't care. As a matter of fact, I want to take them out and I want to burn them. And then I want to heat orphanages using brand guidelines because they're the dumbest, least helpful. It's just, it's just some idiot trying to make himself relevant. Like they're stupid and I hate them. Sorry to be so aggressive here. It's funny that we had this exact conversation on Friday on the customer acquisition show, not to tie it back into that, but it was like all about that with regard to just deconstructing Black Friday, Cyber Monday and like never ever turn off an ad that's converting. 
even if it has a typo or even if it has your brand 13 pixels to the left of the last sentence as opposed to 14 pixels, never shut it off because that is a gift from the gods. Something that (laughs) – and don't mess with it. Super, super important there. So brand guidelines be damned. Throw them out the window when it comes to this kind of stuff here. At the end of the day, it's about bringing in new customers, right? No, this this has been awesome. So we will leave links in the show notes for everything that we talked about here. I think we made a couple of references to a couple of other shows. And I want to thank you, as always, for listening. And make sure you do subscribe leave a rating wherever you listen to your podcast. We're pretty much everywhere now. I can't think of a platform that we're not on. And of course, as always, let us know what we can do better over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash better. Follow me over on LinkedIn and you'll probably see some of those videos that we talked about in the nugget in my LinkedIn. So tease there and uh, follow Kasim over on Twitter at at Qasim Aslam. Go back and listen to previous episodes. All resources are over at perpetualtraffic.com on behalf. And don't forget to listen to the customer acquisition show. Yes, absolutely. Check that out. And on behalf of my awesome co-host, Qasim Aslam. Peace. See ya. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic. 